Romans 15. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and take that out. If you do not have a Bible, we have some in the back. There's little blue ones with the micro print that are almost impossible to read, but you can at least look like you're reading your Bible. So we're going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. Right. Thank you to Seth for reading that enormous passage. Um, but as we've been talking about over the past almost a year now, I think, that we've been going through the book of Romans, um, today's sermon um, is very much an extension of last week's sermon, in so much so that I'm calling it Gospel-Shaped People Part 2. And now, I don't normally do sermons that are Part 1 and Part 2 when you kind of, as we do, we tend to just preach straight through books of the Bible, so we could technically do that every week, right? Part 3, Part 40, Part 75, right? <laughs> But this week, the text is so closely aligned with what we talked about last week that I decided to just call it part two. So it's very congruent. So last week, to kind of maybe give us a little bit of brief um, uh, review of what we talked about last week. So, so Paul is, um, in preacher's terms, beginning to wrap up his uh, letter to the church at Rome. And he's winding down and he's... Um, he's um, Talking about this idea, as we've, as we've seen, about this, this concept of being a gospel-shaped person. What does it mean to be, a, to be shaped, informed by the gospel itself? What does that look like? How do we become gospel-shaped people? And as, he, as we've gone through this entire book, we've seen Paul sort of give us um, a framework to, to look at and to see how we arrive at the conclusions that we arrive at when we say, okay, God, how should we live our lives? What should we do? Oftentimes, we want to start there, right? We want to start with, with saying, okay, God, just tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. But, but what we're seeing here is Paul is sort of slowing us down, and he's saying, first, it, it's, it's good for us to, to know and to understand what God tells us to do. But if we, if we simply just go to God and ask Him to, to show us those things, we're going to be missing the larger picture of what He's trying to communicate to us. And we see that in this letter. And one of the things that we see as we are, we're wanting to be people who are shaped by Jesus, shaped by His gospel, and shaped by this truth, is that it's important for us to never assume the gospel. We can never assume the gospel. Well, so what do we mean when we say that? We never simply rush to the, the things to do, the busy work that we can be doing for God, or the things that He's calling us to, as important as those things are, and they are important because God tells us all throughout His Word that He does have things for us to do. Things that He laid out for us to do from before the foundations, says Ephesians 2. So, so those things are important, but we've, we've, we must first ground those things in the truth, in the reality of what God has revealed to be true about Himself, about what He has done for us, and about who He says that we are now in light of those things. And this is how Paul tends to write his letters. He tends to, he tends to write in this sort of pattern of thinking, this sort of gospel pattern of thinking. This pattern that, that starts with these grand truths about God and who He is, truths about who we are apart from Him, the, the, the grand declarations that, that he makes about what the gospel actually is and how we receive it and how we obtain these things, that we, are, we come to, to be at peace with God again, not through our works, but through faith alone in Christ. This is what he's, he's established in this first, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. He's walked through all of these deep, profound theological truths 
And we see this pattern over and over repeated throughout Scripture, where, where God, His intention is to establish and remind us who He is, the things that He has done for us, and what that means for us before He sends us out to do what He calls us to do. We see this from um, His conversation with the Israelites when He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. He reminds them who He is. He reminds them what He has done for them. And then He gives them His law. He says, here's how you live. In light of those things that are now true of you and the identity that I've now given you as My people, here's how you are to live. This is the pattern of thought. This is the pattern of thinking of the Gospel. He doesn't say, here's the law. If you accomplish this law, then I will be your God and I will get you out of Egypt. That's reverse. That's not the Gospel. He says, no, I've gotten you out of Egypt. I am already your God and I have called you to be my people. Now here's how you live in light of those things that are already true. It's a big difference. It's, it's a slight difference, but it's an enormous difference as we think about being Gospel-shaped people. And Paul understands this as he writes this. He understands as the Spirit is inspiring him to write this. This pattern of thinking. This is why he does not assume the Gospel in the church of Rome. He doesn't assume it. He's clear on it. This is why he says in chapter 15, verse 15, he says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He's saying all these things that we've just been talking about that I've boldly shared to you, the, the intricacies of the gospel, maybe some would say the most intricate unpacking of the gospel anywhere ever written, and he's saying, I'm saying these things to you as a reminder. He's reminding them of the gospel. And he, and he even says that part of the reason that he hasn't come to them yet is because they, they already are a church that has been formed by the gospel. That's why, that's why I haven't come to you yet. He's, he understands, he, he acknowledges their maturity. He acknowledges their, their knowledge and their spirituality. He commends them for it. But yet, at the same time, he's reminding them of these great and grand truths of the gospel. He doesn't assume it in them. He spends the first 11 chapters teaching them and reminding them of this. And this is such an important concept for us to remember as we seek to be gospel-shaped people. We can't assume the gospel in ourselves. We can't assume the gospel and others around us? Not that we're constantly questioning our salvation or questioning the salvation of others, but we all operate in areas of unbelief. In some way, we are all, at any moment, unbelievers in a particular way, shape, or form. Jesus says that we can know a lot about a person and what they think and what they believe by what? By their fruit. Right? He says, you know a tree by its fruit. So, when we begin to see our lives, even as believers, that we are producing bad fruit, what do we do? How do we change that bad fruit? Well, I love Paul Tripp's example. He says that if you have an apple tree in your backyard... And that apple tree, for whatever reason, is not producing healthy apples. 
right? Whatever the case is, they're, they're shriveled, they're dying. It's not producing good apples. It doesn't make sense for us to look out in the backyard and see this dead, dying apple tree and then go to the store and buy a couple of cart, carts full of apples, good ones, shiny ones, waxed up, and bring them home, take off those dead apples, and staple on the new ones that we just got from the store. Right? That, that, doesn't, that wouldn't make sense. We would under, anyone would know that looking at that tree from afar, you may say, oh yeah, that tree has nice looking apples on it. That's, that tree is producing good fruit. But if you really know the story, you understand that that's not actually being produced by the tree itself. That, that is not fruit that is being bore by that tree. And so, we know that that would be silly to staple on good, healthy apples onto a dead tree. And so, so Jesus, this is Jesus' point. He does, when he, when we, we notice in ourselves or in one another that we are producing bad fruit, he doesn't say to us, well, just stop it. Stop doing this and do these other things. He understands that that's not, that's not sufficient for us to now produce the fruit that is needed, that he requires of us, that he asks of us, that he calls us to. Be like going to a, a counselor and you, and you say, okay, you know, I'm depressed, I'm anxiety, I'm struggling, I, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I, um, all of my relationships are falling apart all around me. I, and, and the guy goes, well, just stop it. Just stop doing those things. And you're like, you wouldn't go to that, that counselor for very long if that was his advice to you. Stop. We must understand that the source of the problem is deeper. When you look at a tree that is producing bad fruit, you understand that the problem lies with the soil or the roots or the trunk or the branch or something along the way that is, that is causing the, the fruit that is being produced to not be healthy fruit. And this is the same in our lives. If we are producing bad fruit, we know that we have a problem somewhere underneath. It's, the problem lies underneath the surface. It lies in areas of our heart and our mind and our beliefs. What we're, what we're believing to be true about ourselves or, or about God or about the world around us, something is off somewhere. And so we have to figure what, out what this is. Our core beliefs and our core identity give shape to how we live our lives. And this is the gospel pattern. This is what we see that, that arises up out of Scripture as we look at the scope of Scripture. The things that we do are a, pro, a production of the things that we most deeply believe to be true about ourselves or about God, about the world around us. And this is true about us because this is true about God. God does what He does because of who He is, because of who He knows that He is, who He understands Himself to be. The things that He does toward us and toward creation flow out of who He is as a person, as a being. His nature, His character is what is producing the actions that He does toward us. And we, being created in His image, are like Him in this way. We we are similar in that the things that are true about us is what produces the fruit, the actions that we do. 
And so we don't just start with, okay, what should we do? When we're off, we don't just say, okay, stop doing this and do this other better thing. This is Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees over and over and over, right? He's looking at them and he's saying, you're doing the right things. You're stapling the apples onto the tree. People look at you and they may see like, well, that person's very, look look at that fruit on that person. And Jesus is saying, no, you're you're a false front. You're a whitewashed tomb. The the inside is is still dead and it's, it's wretched. Even though on the outside, it looks like, yeah, you stapled those apples on there and it looks shiny from a distance. But he understands the true nature of their hearts. They didn't. They didn't understand. See, God is gracious and so he shows us grace. God is loving. He is love. And so he, he is loving toward us. He is forgiving. He is kind. He is creator. So he creates all of these things, right? The nature and character of God are what produces the action of God. He flows, it flows out of who he is. It's his glory spilling over. This is the pattern that we see over and over and over and over. It shapes who we are. It shapes, it's what makes us we want to be gospel-shaped people. This is how we have to begin to think. This is part of this renewing of our mind that we talked about in chapter 12. It's, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Something has to happen deep within, inside of us, not just, here's the list of things that you can check off and do now that you're a Christian. And as long as you do those things, you can just skate on into glory. It's not how it works. It's not, it's not the con- you're missing the conversation. So, if we see the bad fruit, we know that it's primarily flowing out of our unbelief. The Bible says the remedy to this is what it calls repentance. Repentance, biblically, is this idea of turning. Turning from something and turning to something else. Primarily, The concept is that we turn our hearts, our desires, our affections, our love, uh, our cravings, our our wants. Those are the things that have to turn in order for us to turn away from, truly turn away from sin. We don't just turn our back on sin and just run wildly out into the wilderness. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning from something and running to something else, going in the right direction toward Jesus, toward his ways, toward his his kindness, his truth, his goodness. There's a turning there, but it's a turning from something and it's a turning to something. And so when, we, when we're, we're wanting to address these things in our hearts and our minds and our lives, we have to first repent from our unbelief. We said, Lord, show me where I'm, I'm living and walking and acting in unbelief that is producing this bad fruit in my life. And this is where we need God's word. This is where we need his people. We need his spirit to show us and to teach us and to convict us and to speak truth into our hearts and our minds and remind us. This is what Jesus says. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to us to do what? To remind us of the things that he said. He gives us one another to speak the truth in love to one another so that we can grow up in every way. And Hebrews 3 says that we are to exhort one another every day as long as it is today. Why? Because if we don't, our hearts will grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This, this unbelief will creep in and creep in and creep in. And we may try to staple apples onto the tree, but we're not getting to the root of the problem, which is our unbelief. 
So, if we want to be gospel-shaped people, we can never assume the gospel. And the truth, the gospel truth, is what brings us into the kingdom. And it's what sustains us as God's people. So it gets us in, it brings us in through this gospel truth. But this gospel truth, we don't discard it once we're in and move on to bigger and better things. The gospel truth is what brings us in, but it's also what what sustains us and propels us forward as we grow into the likeness of Christ. So here, in chapter 15, which, side note, we come to find out as we get into chapter 15 that this whole thing was just a support-raising letter that Paul sends out. Like, really? This whole time? Just raising support? All right, it's fine. Spirit-inspired support letter. But here, we look at Paul's example, and we can see some of the markers of, of a gospel-shaped person and a, what a gospel-shaped people should look like. We can see as he's talking to this church and he's corresponding with them and he's letting them know what he's doing and where he's going and why he's going here and why he's going there. So, so last week we talked about three things that we see as markers of gospel-shaped people. One marker is that gospel-shaped people find and commit to God's people. We, we are a part of God's people in and through local churches. This is Paul's method. This is the Spirit's method that he sends out Paul to do. He goes into a city. He preaches the gospel. He establishes a church. And he calls the people of that city to be a participant in that church. To be with one another. Not solo, lone ranger Christianity. It's not a concept that we see in the Bible. So we find and we commit to God's people. Second, gospel-shaped people view all of their life and their ministry as worship to God. This is what Paul's saying. He said, I'm offering up myself, my work, my ministry, which is the Gentile people, as an offering back to God. This is what I've given myself to, and this is what I'm offering back. Just as Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's saying, my living sacrifice is my work and my ministry to the Gentile people. So we are to see all of our life, all of our ministry, as worship back to God. It is our offering to Him. Third, gospel-shaped people trust God to produce the fruit. They trust God to produce the fruit. We work and we toil and we strive and we trust God to be the one to produce the fruit. Just like a farmer. A farmer goes out and he buries millions of dollars into the ground every year. And he has to trust God that 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 seed that he planted is going to, sh- to pop up out of the ground. He can do all of his due diligence. He can, he can till and he can plant and he can, he can fertilize. He can do everything that he can imagine. But if ultimately at the end of the day, the fruit of that crop is not in his hands. And this is our call as believers. We work, we toil, we strive for God from his position of acceptance and we trust that the fruit comes from him. And so today... And yes, if you're keeping track, that all of that was just the introduction. <laughs> I haven't even started the sermon yet. In today's text, we see a few more of these gospel markers of what a gospel-shaped person looks like. So Paul, Paul's a missionary. That should probably go without saying, but Paul's a missionary, and he's unique in the sense that Paul is a Jew, 
but he has been sent to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world. This is his very unique and special call to be sort of this, this tip of the spear, so to speak, into these places that are non-Jewish that have, that have not had the gospel yet. And he says in verse 21 that this is all if actually a fulfillment. What he's doing is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 15, it says, it says it in verse 21 of chapter 15, those who have n- never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul understood that his mission was to go to people that had not heard the gospel yet. He was a pioneer. He was a missionary pioneer. And this is why he says in our text today, in chapter, in chapter 15, verse 22, he says, this is why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, from coming to Rome. Right? Because we talked about it. the church had already been started there and it wasn't him who started it. So he says, I haven't come to you. Why? Because there's already a church there and that's not my job. My job is not to come where there already are churches. He's saying, my job is to go where there are no churches. The people who haven't heard, I take the gospel to them. That's what Jesus told me to do. But it's important for us to understand how he's talking here. How we can see that God, we can see what God has to say, particularly here, about our connection to the global church. That every one of us in here who is in Christ, who is a believer, who has put their trust and their faith, you are connected and united to every person across the globe in this moment who is in Christ as well. From every country, every tribe, every nation, even in this room, we have representation from all over the place, all different countries, different states, different backgrounds, and we are united. I've heard it said that you have more in common with your Christian brother or sister in China than you do your unbelieving neighbor. We are united to the church globally. And this is what Paul is, he's talking about this idea. We are, the gospel shapes us in this way, to connect us to the global church. And the first thing that we see in, in light of this connection that he's talking about here is that the gospel shapes us to participate in this global church, to participate together. We don't just admire what's happening overseas and we say, oh, that's pretty cool, or that's, that's sad, or that's a bummer. No, we, we are united with our brothers and sisters all over the world, all over the city, all over our state, all over the world. We're united to them, and we participate with them. Look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you, the Romans, in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I always like how he throws that in there. He's like, I'm planning on just kind of hanging out with you guys for a while. But then I have, I have to get back to work, right? He's saying, I'm, I, his plan is that he will go into Spain and bring the gospel into Spain as this tip of the spear into Spain. But he's saying, but on my way, I need you, the Roman church, to participate in that with me. And God is calling them to participate in this mission to Spain through Paul. 
There's a connection here. So I don't know if the Roman church had like a missions budget. I don't know if they had like a missionary pastor. I don't know their situation. Maybe they had a strategy of like, okay, we're going to get to Spain. We're going to get the gospel in Spain. They may have, I don't know. Whether that's true or not, Paul is pleading to them in the support letter to say, hey, I need your help as the gospel is going to Spain. It's God is going to use you to support me so that the gospel can go to Spain. See the participation here. They're, they're being called into this thing, even though they, don't, they may know nothing about Spain. They may know nobody there. They may have no point of reference. Nobody, maybe nobody came from Spain to their church with a slideshow and saying, hey, look, we need help in Spain. But Paul is saying, still, yeah, you are connected to the church and, and the, the would-be church in Spain, and you're being called to participate in this. Because he understands that the gospel changes us. And it unites us together. And God's plan for reaching the world is the church. That's his plan. There's no plan B. His church is the plan to reach the world with the gospel. That's it. This is his, this is his way. And, he's, and he shows us this with Paul. He sends Paul all over and he starts churches. And this is true we are called to participate in this. Maybe it's through prayer. Maybe it's through funding. Maybe it's through going. I don't know. God, God will tell you. His Spirit will direct you in those things. But one way or another, we are called to participate with the greater church across the globe. And this is true for us because this is true for God. Remember, we can't just skip the part where we're informed by who God is. Jesus came, the gospel came to us because Jesus participated. <laughs> That's how it got to us. Jesus participated. He, he didn't just sit back on the sidelines. He had skin in the game, literally. He left glory. He put on flesh and he came to earth as a man, fully God, fully man, and it says that he humbled himself. And he was obedient, even obedient to death. Why? So that we could know. So that we could be brought in by his blood into the family of God. And he is our example. We look to him and we say, okay, Jesus participated in this. So, okay, I want to be like you. So that means I should participate in this. In the spreading of the gospel, in the, in the mission of your gospel the advancing of your kingdom, to participate in global kingdom advancement. This is the call. Some way, some shape, nobody, nobody's going to look the same. And so we can't look at somebody and say, well, I'm doing this and you're, not, and you're only doing this. No, no, we're called to participate. Through, maybe through prayer, maybe through giving, maybe through time, effort, energy. Maybe you're called to go, I don't know. But what we can be sure of is that we are called to participate somehow like Jesus did. And so the gospel unites us to the global church, and God calls us to participate in this kingdom advancement in another way that we are united to the global church is through the sharing of physical needs, physical blessings. This is what Paul is talking about. The gospel shapes us to help meet the needs of the global family of God. This is, a, this is a part of that participation. 
Look at verse 25. He says, At present, however, so he, he's wanting to go to Spain, and he's going to stop in Rome before he goes to Spain. He says, But before that, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Before he can go, he's going to take this aid, probably financial aid, some sort of aid. He doesn't spell it out, but he's saying, I have to stop and I have to help because there are people in Jerusalem that are in the family of God that need help. They're poor they're, they're maybe being persecuted in some ways. We know that there's at this time strife happening in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Gentiles and the believing Jews. And it's, a, it's kind of a mess. And we see that in Acts 21, 22, where Paul's interacting with the people in Jerusalem in this moment. And it's, it goes pretty bad for Paul for a minute there in Jerusalem. It gets kind of shaky for a minute. People are trying to kill him. They're beating him up. Right? So the people in Jerusalem need help. And he's saying, I'm going to take this help to them. He said, but this help is coming from where? Macedonia and Achaia. These other churches are saying, yes, we want to participate with the family of God that we've never met and we've never seen and we will never probably ever meet or see until we get to heaven with them. But we want to participate with them. And so we're going to give you this to take to them. And look what he says in verse 27. He says, and for they were pleased to do it. They, they understood that they were gospel-shaped people. And they understood how they came to be into the family of God. And they understood the truths of the gospel. And they said, yeah, we're, we're pleased to do this. This is the least that we can do. Look what it says. And indeed, they owe it to them. They owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. If God has brought us into his family together through these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, he has now called us to participate with one another in the sharing of our physical blessings. Why? Because all of the blessings come from God. They're all his to begin with. And so the people in Macedonia and Achaia, they're like, yeah, we, we can't wait to give blessings to the people in Jerusalem. And not just like, Hey, we hope you're doing okay. No, like they're writing checks. They're, they're sending money. They're sending supplies. They're, they're, they're in with them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he's constantly grounding it back in Christ. Everything that he says, almost every sentence that he says, he's, he's grounding it back in the reality of Christ, who Christ is, what he has done. He's always coming back to this. And we know, if we read the New Testament, we see the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives to us. What are they? To love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor. Those are the two great commandments. But we see in Scripture that there's, there seems to be this priority that's given within that second commandment. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. I'll read it. 
Galatians 6, this is Paul writing to the church of Galatians. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Second commandment, right? And then he says, And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we do good to everyone. We're generous. We are called to help meet the needs of the people around us in light of what God has done for us. But he said the priority there is given first to the household of God. There's a priority in there. There's weight given to the household of faith. So when the gospel shapes us and the gospel changes us, we put our faith in Christ, we are adopted into his family, and God has, he has promised us then to provide for his children. He says, I will provide for you. I will give you what you need. And one of the primary ways that he does that is through the other family of God. He is the one who allocates all of the resources. Every person who is a believer, no matter who signs your paycheck, the paycheck is not primarily coming from your place of work. <laughs> we have to understand this. Your paycheck is coming to you from God. And he is allocating his resources to you through your work or whatever you do, however you make money, to then be used under the, 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 the lordship of Christ. This is what we say, right? We are under his kingship and, and we submit to him. And so we submit everything to him. All of our time, our effort, our resources, it's all, it's, it's all been given to us by him. And so he helps to meet the needs of the household of God and others by the family of God and the resources that he has given to the family of God. Even if we've never met them sometimes. And not begrudgingly, right? He says we do it cheerfully. We give cheerfully. The, the people in Macedonia and Achaia, they were, they were thrilled to get to participate with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And finally, Paul invites them not just to give physically, but to pray. He makes even a special emphasis here on the prayer. But not just to pray, right? What does he say? To strive together with him in prayer. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's grounding it back in Christ. And by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Why? Because he knows that he, he might be headed into some trouble. He can kind of foresee where he's going and that it's not always easy for him because he is the tip of the spear guy. And, and the places that he goes in, they're not always receptive to what he has to say. And he gets beat up a lot. People throw rocks at him. People try to kill him. All of those things. And he said, I, what I covet more than anything is your prayers. I covet your prayers because, because it, it could get bad for me. And I want to be able to fulfill the mission that God has called me to do. And so, would you pray? Would you pray for, for those who are struggling? Would you pray for those across the world who are being persecuted? Even right now, there may be some. Paul, he's inviting us to, to not just pray, but to... Have we, have we, have we ever st strived in prayer? Do we strive in prayer? I feel like a lot of times I don't, if I'm being honest. I don't really strive in prayer. I, I pray, and I feel good. Okay, I prayed about that. 
Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But I feel pretty good about it. But it's not the picture that we see here. He's calling us to strive in prayer for our brothers and our sisters and our family and, and those who don't, don't yet know our Father. We, we strive in prayer. He understood, the, he understood the power and the importance of prayer. And he understood that his ministry was a gospel ministry. Paul's ministry was a gospel ministry. And he appeals to them. How does he appeal to them? He appeals to them once again by Christ, by, by our Lord, our Lord. He's, he's saying this is our, he's our Lord. By the love of the Spirit that we share, right? The unity of the Spirit that he, that he writes about in Ephesians. He appeals to them and says, please pray for me. Because he knew, Paul knew, because he had seen him. He knew that Jesus was alive. He knew that Jesus was alive. And that's why he tells them to pray. Because he knew that Jesus had risen from the dead because he saw him. And he talked to him and he interacted with him. And Jesus shows up and knocks him down and says, stop persecuting me. Go tell the Gentiles about me. And he's like, okay, deal. He knew that his ministry was a gospel ministry and he knew that Jesus was alive. And if Jesus told him to go and do it, that Jesus would make it happen. He knew where the true fruit came from. He knew where the fruit of his ministry came from. He knew that it wasn't him. He's clear about it. And so he trusted. And he said, just pray for me. Because if God wants me to get out, he'll get me out. And if he doesn't want me to get out, what does he say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, that's okay. So just pray. <laughs> pray that I'll be, I'll be faithful. Pray that I'll be steadfast. Pray that I won't abandon the mission. And then he, and he leaves them with this concept that he's talked about all through the book, right? This idea of this peace. That the, pe that the God of peace would be with you. Because we can now have that peace because of Christ and because of our faith in Him. We can now have peace with God. And He's saying, I pray that this peace is what is with you. He doesn't pray that they get more money. He doesn't pray that they are successful in their jobs. He says, I pray that the God of peace will be with you. Because He trusted. And He knew that Jesus was alive. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank you for this truth and we praise you for the reality that we get to live in and walk in. That God, we would, we would be lost and helpless without you, but you came to us and you showed up and you, 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 you made reconciliation possible now that we can have peace with you. And when we have peace with you, you bring us into your family. And you provide for us, and you take care of us, and you give us brothers and sisters to walk alongside of us. God, help us as we seek to be gospel-shaped people, to remember these truths. Transform us, God, by the renewing of our minds, that we would think rightly about you, that we would not forget you. We would not forget what you're like. We, have, we would not forget what you say. We would not forget the promises that you have made to us as your people. So as we go, as we leave this space, God, as we leave today, we would leave understanding that we are being sent by you. 
And you are calling us wherever you have us, wherever you have sent us. You have us there on purpose. And we have every resource that we need. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your people. God, help us, as Paul did, to believe and remember that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He rose from the dead and he is sitting at your right hand right now, advocating for us, interceding for us, speaking a better word over us. And then we can trust. And so help us, God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.